Let's go to John chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 31 to the end of the chapter to finish where we started last week. John chapter 13, 31 through 38. God's inerrant, infallible word. A word that's described <clears throat> as being sharper than a two-edged sword. A word that is described as being such that it, it purifies us. It, it cauterizes. It changes us. That we can't read it and hear it believing it and remain the same ho-hum, mundane, nominalist Christian that we otherwise might look like. God's word. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now the he there is Judas, whom he sent out in the night. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now... Is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. The Son, who is eternally begotten from the Father. The Spirit, who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. What a marvelous, glorious thing it is to ponder our great and glorious God. We pray that you would work in our hearts today, that we might love you more. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we began the larger portion, which goes back to verse 21 last week. And we considered that passage, which began saying that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And then he explains why he was troubled in his spirit. Because one of you will betray me. The disciples looked around, they wondered, who's the one? Even after Jesus dips the morsel, gives it to Judas, instructs him to go and do what you have to do, 
they're still sitting there going, I wonder who he's talking about. That's how dense we can be. We like to talk about them, don't we? Oh, Peter. I would have never, well, I doubt it. I, I su- 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 suppose we, we'd all be more like Peter than we'd like to fess up to. And we'd all be more like Peter than we would like the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was filled with humility. We saw Jesus troubled in his human spirit, and yet we talked about the fact that as the God-man, he was completely unshaken in his divine nature. And that's remarkable to ponder. Because when you and I sit or stand or walk or lie down at night to sleep and we're troubled because of whatever, it can be a child that's wayward, it can be about a death, it can be about a sickness, it can be about uh, a doctor's visit, a, a host of things. When we're troubled in our spirit, we're not usually altogether in control. We have trouble going to sleep. Now, if we were in control, we could be troubled in our spirit and then say, but hey, praise God, I'm going to sleep now. And we could just nod off. But that reminds us that we're not in control. But our Savior could be troubled in spirit because of this betrayal that's imminent. And at the same time, he could be in absolute control. We saw the control factor last week. In that he does this, he dips the bread, gives it to him. Now remember, this is not intinction. This is not during the the Lord's Supper. This is during the Passover meal. This is when they would take the bread. They'd sop it in the herbs and sauces and stuff on the plate. And they would eat it that way. I grew up with grandparents that ate that way. Some of you did. And maybe some of you still eat that way. And particularly if it's a biscuit with that last bit of gravy on the plate. I don't eat biscuits and gravy because they're not good for me, but I, I, I know people who do. That was a tongue in cheek. I do occasionally eat biscuits and gravy. Okay. <clears throat> and like it. With Jesus, he identifies And then he says, now go and do what you have to do. So he's troubled in his spirit and he's in absolute control. He initiates it. He puts the whole process in motion. And we see this all the way through John, don't we? Fully human. And that's revealed to us. And yet fully God. And that's fully revealed to us. And we struggle with it. Peter's struggling with it. We see that in verses 36 and following. So we saw that last week. The sovereign servant sage expresses that which is upon his heart. And what's upon his heart is he's troubled and yet he's in control. Now we move on to the second point. Picking up from last week. The sovereign servant sage. Remember, this is on the tail end. It's coming. It's following. He was the servant. He was the one that took and he washed their feet. He showed the ultimate humility in washing their feet. But he's also the one who knows everything. He's all-knowing. 
The sovereign servant sage explains that which is dear to his heart. What's dear to his heart? When he had gone out, when Judas has gone out, and it's nighttime, he said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. We don't have time, not going to take time. We've already seen this, this, this concern. This, this, this which was on the Lord's mind all the way through was glory. The glory as of the only begotten. The one who is the exact image who, who, who emanated the effulgence of the glory of God. Hebrews 1 tells us. That which he had come from, the glory, to which he would ascend again, the glory. During this period, while he's at work on the earth, that is on his mind. To return to the Father. We're going to come to this in, in John chapter 17. That's at the very beginning. That's part of the main part, first part of the prayer, the high priestly prayer is that he wants to return and enter into the glory he had with the Father from before the creation. And here it comes up again. When he had gone out, when Judas has gone out, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God, speaking of the Father, if God the Father is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. There's the eminence. It's right now. He knows it's at hand. There's been hints. As D.A. Carson says, those previous comments that John's made, little things Jesus has said, they're cloaked. They're veiled. But now Jesus comes right out and says, now's the time. This is why I came. The betrayal's at hand. I'm going to be glorified. We think, okay, wait a minute. We know our catechism. We know about humiliation and glorification, exaltation. We know he's living now in the flesh. He's humiliated, yes. But in his humiliation and the ultimate exercise of his humiliation, on the cross, he's lifted up. He's glorified. He's exalted. It's like the launching pad. For his ascension back to heaven. Glory is dear to his heart. But notice this is in the context of. That little bitty statement that was made at the end of verse 30. That I commented on just briefly last week. Say we'll see it next week. When Judas goes out and it was night. This was not just John. Remember, John's about theology. John's not just telling us what time of the day it was. Remember what Jesus has said? Herman Ritterboss, in his wonderful commentary on John, gets right to the point. He says, Judas has gone out into the darkness, and that marks the end of the day. And the end of the day has come. Jesus, let me read you something. This is what Ritterboss has in mind. Back in John chapter 9, his disciples ask him, John 9, remember the blind man? Who sinned, his parents or did he? Jesus says, no. 
This is so that I might be glorified, so that I might be exalted. His disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus said, it was neither that this man be this man sinned or his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must carry out the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. The time is the light has come to an end. It's night. It's darkness. Sin has taken on. It's taken on control. Judas is out in the night. You know everything that happens after this pretty much is in the night. They come with their torches. They come to secure Jesus. They take him. The false trial they put him through. And then the morning comes. The cross comes. The darkness falls upon the earth all through the afternoon. But then the day breaks. So Jesus, John, has painted for us here. The night has come. And that's a sign for Jesus that now that the night is here, now that the darkness has fallen, now that all this is set in motion, it's time to be glorified. So what does it mean? What should we think about when we think about the Son being glorified, the Father being glorified, the Spirit being glorified? Well, that's why I read Ezekiel. I don't know how to explain glory. The Hebrew word just means heaviness and weightiness. The Greek word is not any better. Here's the, here's the issue. When you start talking about, ultimately talking about God in all of his splendor, all languages fail. All human languages fail. Hebrew fails. Greek fails. And those must have been the two best because God chose them. And if those failed, our pathetic English fails, certainly. And so Ezekiel, God, God paints this, 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 I mean, Hollywood can't even reenact Ezekiel chapter 1. They would have by now if they could have, because that's pretty was spectacular. Wheels going every direction at the same time, and yet still a wheel. Creatures with four faces, and they go in different directions, and yet they're the same all the time. And after he describes all this wild, bizarre Spectacular. Did you notice? After all that, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Ezekiel says, I've done my best. I just described what God told me to describe, what he showed me. This is about the glory of the Lord. This is God. God is indescribable. God is remarkable. God can, Ed Welch, 
years ago I heard him, Ed, in, in Philadelphia preach a sermon. Some of y'all read Ed Welch's books. And he preached on this passage. And this was the title of the sermon. God is on his throne and his throne is on the move. And then he preached a sermon about the providence of God. Because this throne is going everywhere at the same time and it's not coming apart. I mean, if the wheels on my car all went a different direction at the same time, I'd die. I would cease to exist. Right? Can't happen. Not with a good ending. And yet this, this throne is like a chariot. And it's going everywhere. Up and down and out and back and forth. And there's lightning and there's fire and there's spectacular. And it's about the glory of God, Ezekiel says. Now listen. We don't think about God the way we're supposed to think about God. We I think of the Chronicles of Narnia about Aslan. I'm not going to ask you if you've read the Chronicles, but if you haven't, God will get you if you don't go home and start today. And Miss Linda will help you find them out here. And if we can't find them out here, you can come by my house and grab number one and start on it. But that marvelous scene with Aslan. And the conclusion is, yeah, he's wonderful. He's good, but he's not safe. And we have so tamed God. We have so uncomplicated God. We have so ordinary, that's not a word. We've made God so ordinary that we're not amazed anymore. I mean, you can't read Ezekiel 1 and then the conclusion, this is about the glory of God and not be just, wow. God was in all of that. And he was being worshipped by all those creatures. And he was being served by all those creatures. And he was in control of all those creatures. And the Lord Jesus says, that's me. That's who I am. Now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified. And if God's glorified in the Son of Man, God will also glorify him in himself. And he's going to do it at once. That's the first thing that explains what was on the heart of Jesus. This is surely not going to be a three-part series. Second point. Notice something else that's on the heart of Jesus. No, we're not going to go there yet. We have to look at this a little more. If God is glorified, what is, 
Ritterboss goes on and says something else. He says that here we are. The Lord knows he's about to be glorified in his being exalted, his being lifted up on the cross, and then comes the death, and then comes the resurrection, and then comes the exaltation and the ascension, the glorification. But Ritterboss says, but the end of his descent is also the beginning of his ascent back to the Father. And that's what Jesus understands. I'm about to ascend back to the Father. Ephesians 4. We've already covered it, but I'm going to go back there for a moment. And we're just, I'm going to read it to you. Because it's easy for us to read over and we forget this is about the glory of Jesus. Verse 7 of chapter 4. But grace was given to each of you, us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, it being the scriptures, when he ascended on high, he led a captive of a host of captives. That's us. We're the captives of Jesus. He, he, he ascended back on high. He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. There's that fill all things thing that Isaiah saw when he saw the, the, the train of the Lord, the, 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 the gown, the robe, all of the Lord's garments just flowing through the earth, all through the universe. That's our Jesus. He ascended and he fills it all up. And again, we so humanize, because he did take on flesh, but we so humanize Jesus that we don't think of Jesus as filling the universe right now. There's a reason, there's a reason that Calvin and Luther had their squabble over what happens at the Lord's Supper. It's because two humans trying to figure out what it would be like for a savior who was divine and yet still in enfleshed with our flesh forevermore how he can be in heaven and be with us all at the same time i land on calvin's side but I understand Luther's predicament. Because if this Ephesians passage is right, and it is, that he might fill all things, he is seated on the throne, but he is the all-present second person of the Holy Trinity. And we should be struck with awe because of that. Next, he called them little children. You didn't miss that, did you? John picked up on it, and it appears in the first epistle of John. Jesus' language for us, little children. And guess what? Some of you are older than I am and many of you are younger than I am and we're all his little children 
I like that. Now I realize some of you may have grown up in homes where being a little child was not very pleasant. And I'm sorry. But we're in a family, the family of God, the household of faith, where being little children is good. And it should be fun. And it should be pleasant. And it should be loving. And it should be kind. And by God's grace here at Covenant, it is. And we're all little children. And we're treated like little children. Little children can't do for themselves. But they must be done for, as Warfield said. Nothing better signifies that than proper biblical baptism. When a covenant child is brought and baptized, one who cannot do for himself but must be done for. There's no participation. There's no cooperation. You're all at the disposal of the great God of heaven when you come to the baptismal font. And that's the way we should live all our lives, totally dependent on the Lord who saved us from our sins. One more thing before we conclude. And we will come back a third time round for this passage. Where I'm going, you cannot go. John reminds them, he'd already said that to the Jews back in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And then he says, on the, on the tail end of that, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Now some of you, when I read that, said, well, we just read that back in Leviticus. That's the summary of the second table of the law. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So why does Jesus say it's a new commandment? Because it's as old as creation. Well, because we're living in the fullness of time. Jesus has come. Love one another. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. But not until Jesus came could you understand properly how to love yourself the way you're supposed to and therefore you couldn't understand how to love others as you love yourself now right now some of you have already peaked and you're thinking what well here's what jesus says here's the commandment i give you love one another just as i've loved you you also are to love one another see that's what's new as I have loved you. So now we love ourselves the way Christ loves us. Sacrificially. Slavishly. Not self-indulgently. We love ourselves with humility. Not with pride. We love ourselves. As Christ loved us and gave himself for us, the scripture says. We live sacrificial lives of love for ourselves and then we can love others sacrificially and slavishly on demand. As Christ loves them.
So, see, there, in one sense, there's nothing new about it. We just more fully understand it. It's like the new covenant. It's not new. It's the same covenant of grace that was decreed in eternity and played out in the Adamic covenant, in the Noahic covenant, in the Abrahamic covenant, in the Mosaic covenant, in the Davidic covenant. It's the same covenant. It's the same grace. It's just in the fullness of time when Christ came. It's the same command. It's just new in the sense that we now know what it means to love one another. Because we've seen it in Jesus. Nothing changed except us. So how do you love? How do we love one another? Because that's how we're going to be known. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is, we love one another sacrificially. We love one another like Christ loved us, unconditionally. We're conditional people, aren't we? Well, if they do this, I'll like that. If they do this, I'll love them better. Jesus loved us while we were yet sinners. And that's how we're to love one another. So the servant sage, that's what's on his heart. His glory, his children, and his people loving one another just like he loved them. That's it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray now that you bless your people, that we would more and more see Christ as he deserves to be seen, as the God of glory, that we would see ourselves as the little children who need to be done for at every turn, and that we would love one another sacrificially so that the whole world will see us and be impressed, not with us, but with our Savior. And just perhaps, just perhaps that Im- impression will lead to their salvation. We pray that you would do it through us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.